How many of you have had roommates before? How did that go? Was it a good experience? Was it challenging? Maybe a little bit of both? Um, I really didn't know what roommates were like until I got married. And just to be clear, if you're married or have kids, they don't count as roommates. But I went through my entire childhood never even having to share a room. And then when I got to college, I did the junior college thing for two years, which if you're in high school and don't have a scholarship, it's a great idea to go the JUCO route. Uh, you're welcome, parents. Uh, unless you're trying to get rid of them, then never mind. Uh, after I got my associate's degree, I went off to a four-year university. And by going off to a four-year university, I mean I commuted from my parents' house every single day to school. Um, and then I got married while I was still in college. And neither one of us had a job. Um, fortunately for us, the parents of one of my closest friends had just moved out, out of their home and rented their house to me and Amanda at a super low rate. Well, it was my wife and me, their son, and three of my other close friends. All dudes and Amanda. So, so we started our marriage with four roommates. And it was during that season of my life where I recognized how much my stuff matters to me. If someone dipped into our jar of peanut butter or ate some of the food I had clearly labeled as ingold, I would fly off the handle. At one time, I brought leftovers home from a meal at my parents' house, which I love my mom's cooking, and Josh ate my leftovers. Uh, we almost got in a fist fight. Luckily, there were three other guys there to hold me back. And by the way, I keep saying words like luckily and fortunately in this story, and Amanda asked me to make it very clear that she did not feel lucky or fortunate. But that was my first experience with roommates. And what it taught me is that at 22 years old, I had the same sharing issues that my two-year-old has now. I had a mine problem. And I call it a mine problem because that's precisely what I hear from Zakiah, our two-year-old, all the time. Um, he'll point at anything in our house and say, mine. Food, clothes, phones, my truck, mine. And it's super adorable until it's not. You see, at a certain point, the mine problem gets very off-putting. I know it was off-putting for my roommates way back when, and each of us knows this well, whether we've had roommates or not. We all know someone who takes their stuff too seriously. They hold it too close. They're unwilling to share. Their lives revolve around what they have. And while we can all recognize those extreme cases in others, we all have some of this inside of us as well. Culturally, societally, we have a mine problem. Our, our world prioritizes and even celebrates acquiring and holding on to as much as we possibly can. So much of the American way is centered on getting ahead, getting ahead of other people, financially getting ahead of where we were yesterday, gaining more and more and more. Where do you struggle with the mine problem? In what areas of your life do you tend to hold on to things too tightly? Is it with your money, possessions, time, relationships? You see, sometimes we don't recognize this in ourselves. For, for example, I know some folks who will be pretty generous with their time and money. They'll care for and serve the unhoused community around us, buy them clothes, give them food, and at the same time, we'll complain about the construction of new housing and affordable housing in our housing-deprived market. 
why, if they care for the unhoused, would they complain and even vote against access to more housing? Well, it's pretty simple. As homeowners, if there is a restriction on new housing, then the value of their home will continue to rise. You see, it's so tempting to prioritize our own stuff over someone else's need. The reality is that all of us have an issue with being generous in some circumstances and greedy in others, including me. I mean, even the thought of owning a home comes with some tension, which even though I don't own a home right now, it's a tension I'm not excluding myself from. I told you a while back that I desperately desire to own a home, to have a house I can call mine. And this is still very true. But just get the wheels turning with me a bit here. When I buy a home one day, who will I be, be buying that home from? And who did they buy it from? And who did they buy it from? And who did they buy it from? See, at a certain point, when I'm able to buy a home, in getting mine, I have to come to terms in my soul with the fact that the land I am purchasing in California was at one point claimed by someone else as theirs, most likely to the extreme detriment of an indigenous people group who had stewarded and lived off that land before the claim of mine was made. And, and I'm not bringing this up to induce guilt or, or get you to sell your home and live on the streets or, or even to look for people from the Mawukma Ohlone tribe to, to give the land to. I'm just pointing out the tension. Because even still, in the midst of processing that mind-boggling re revelation, for me, I still want mine. And maybe this helps open the door to the possibility for each of us to admit that through an honest look in the mirror, we all have a mind problem. So how do we solve this problem? How do we bring resolution, clarity, and insight to what we do with what is ours and how it affects our relationships and friendships? Turn your Bibles or Bible, app, Bible apps with me to Acts chapter 2. Um, Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament, so second half of your Bible, after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and before we get to Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. So we're going to be in Acts 2, starting in verse 42, where Luke writes about the lifestyle of the very first church family, the first group of people who were compelled by the words and actions of Jesus. Here's what he writes, starting in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, last time, Clint did a great job of using this passage to launch us into a further study on the togetherness of the early church. Today, I want to focus on two of these verses, verses 44 and 45, where we read, all the believers were together. All the believers were together, like we learned about last time. But look at how that sentence finishes and had everything in common. What does Luke mean by that? They had everything in common? 
Like they all enjoyed the same things, talked alike, dressed alike, thought alike, laughed alike, cried alike. When we have friends who begin a new romantic relationship with someone, what is one of the things we often hear about their new partner? They'll say, we just have so much in common. In an extended conversation like the one we're in about friendships, this phrase from Luke may at first appear to give off the same vibe. All of these people in the Acts Church loved each other so much because they had so much in common. But like we learned last time, that wasn't the case at all. There were major differences creating the the potential for and reality of major division amongst the early church. Racial, cultural, generational, marital status, gender. They were navigating all this tension, trying to be incredibly inclusive as well as attentive and obedient to the words and actions of Jesus while dealing with real cultural issues. One of the only things they had in common was their devotion to and love of Jesus Christ. So, if that's not what Luke meant, what was he going for here? Well, verse 45 gives us a clue. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. When the disciples spent those few years with Jesus before he was crucified, they put all their wealth into a common stockpile. They saw themselves as one family, having common needs, And and it wasn't necessary to possess property by themselves. And based on what we read here, it seems like they're leading the early church in this same way of living life. Not as a, a requirement, as we'll see in a moment, but voluntarily. However, the need was obvious with so many new folks joining the way of Jesus and their community here in Acts 2. Many of these new Christ followers came from abroad. They were from Parthia and Media and Arabia and Rome and Africa and and so on. And it's likely that these folks remained longer in Jerusalem than they had originally intended. This means they probably were denied the usual hospitalities of the Jews because they'd embraced Jesus who had just been put to death. So we can see and understand the need and why the very first church was radically generous with one another. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. You know, I I see a lot of discourse on certain cultural topics about how clear the Bible is on those topics when there is perceived sin or sinful behavior they see in other people. But it's crickets from the Bible Bible is clear crowd when Luke writes that followers of Jesus gave to anyone who had need. There aren't too many people on their soapbox about this principle of Jesus. Flip over to Acts 4 and we'll see Luke provide an even clearer picture of what this looked like. Verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Again, the Bible is clear. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who own land or houses sold them. They brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. And then Luke gives an example. 
Here's what, here's what he writes next. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas is voluntarily doing what love requires. He sees a need and he meets the need by selling his property and bringing the money to the apostles to care for the community. He did it right. And that's why Luke is sharing this. But there were also some people who didn't do it right. Let's keep reading. Go ahead to chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself and brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Again, this clarifies for us that selling and giving everything is not a requirement. It's completely voluntarily, voluntary. Um, look at verse 4. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And couldn't you have done what you wanted with the money? Ananias, why, why would you lie? And, and maybe another question Peter could have asked, who are you lying to? Of course, Ananias lied to, to God and, and lied to the community, but he was also lying to himself. I'm going back to what we learned a couple times ago. The heart is deceitful above all things. This self-deception, convincing yourself you're doing something good, but allowing your greed to ultimately consume you, is deadly. And I'm not just saying that. Look at verse 5. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. He died, just like that. Now, all the folks who see this happen are pretty freaked out and scared, which, which no kidding. And then some of the younger guys come in and take the body away to bury it. And three hours go by. And Sapphira, Ananias' wife, shows up and Peter asks her if the money Ananias had given was for the whole price of the property. And she doesn't bat an eye. She says, of course. She lies too. Peter then proceeds to fill her in on what just went down with her husband and that those same young men who buried him are ready to carry her out and bury her as well. Verse 10, at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The end. So what'd you learn at church today? Um, Luke sharing the story has to be the worst, the worst marketing strategy for communal generosity because it's a story that is so crude and obscure, but I think it helps us to consider some things we otherwise wouldn't. With that said, let's dive into this a bit. Um, first, we have to understand that one of the things Luke really wants his readers to know at the end of chapter four is that the Holy Spirit was so effectively at work in their community that no one had need. When the Holy Spirit is at work within people, they voluntarily take care of each other's material needs. Food, water, shelter, and so on. They seek to share any advantage they have. 
You see, God led them and will lead us to act on behalf of one another. He creates connection and community that is grounded in real needs being met by real people in real ways. God moves us to truly live life in community with each other. And so often in our, in our culture, when people talk about the economy or politics and why they think certain things should be run certain ways, what we can subtly and sometimes not so subtly pick up on is that people are mostly concerned about what is theirs. The belief and societal construct that we are each on our own. Is it not fascinating that one of the things Luke chose to make abundantly clear about the early church is that in this community, in this family of believers, in this church, no one was on their own. It wasn't about me and mine. It was all about us and ours. In this church, there would always be other people looking out for you. Someone else would always have your back, that we would always make sure everyone had whatever they needed. This is one of the things that's so exciting to us about neighborhood churches. Generous living comes so much more naturally and is so much more exciting when we live in smaller community with one another. We actually get to know the needs of those who live in close proximity to us. We can't miss this from the message Luke is trying to communicate. So that's the first thing. Second, second thing, if we take a real close look at this story, was Peter angry because of the amount of money Ananias and Sapphira gave? Or was it something else? It seems to me like Peter wasn't that concerned if they sold their land and kept their money. If they wanted to sell it and give all the proceeds to the church, great. If they wanted to sell the land and only give some of the money to the church, awesome. But what really pissed Peter off was the deceit. Don't you dare walk in here making a show of your generosity, telling us this is all the money when it's not. Inauthenticity, deceit, lies, kills community. It wasn't about the money. It was about participating in this new way of being and living with one another. Each of us doing our part to, when we're able, to contribute to the good of the community. If you don't have anything to give, great. That means you need others and that's why we're here. You are not, I am not, on our own. Now, just as a side note, I feel like I need to address two people just dying because of their deceit. Uh, one of my favorite authors, N.T. Wright, in a podcast recently gave the advice to, to pastors not to preach this passage in a church gathering. He didn't know if you tell me not to do something that I'm totally going to do it. So a couple things we need to understand. First, even though you may have heard it taught this way in the past, nowhere in the text does it say that God killed Ananias and Sapphira. It just says they died. Second, of course we want to connect the two events. We are wired to rationalize the sequence of things. They did something bad, God made something bad happen to them. Everything in us wants to read this story that way. On, on any given night, I can watch hours of Instagram reels. Um, one of my favorite types of videos, besides how to perfect my golf swing, is when someone tries to rob a store and as he's leaving, he runs into a window and gets knocked out or some big dude just comes out of nowhere and just clocks him. Um, I probably shouldn't feel this way, but there's something about poetic justice that I, I really enjoy. It's super sinful, I know, so I'm confessing this to you. But this is exactly what we do with Acts 5. They got what they deserve for lying. 
That's how we want to read it. And that's absolutely how folks in the first century would have read it as well. It was very normal to assume that unusual events had supernatural causes. On the other hand, in the modern world, if we don't want to attribute unusual events to an act of God, we want explanations for exactly what happened. And we, when we don't have proof or data, then we'll start making them up. Well, maybe they had a heart attack from the stress of lying. Maybe they ate some bad food. Maybe they were just old. Either way, whichever conclusion we jump to about these two people dying right in front of, Pe of Peter will cause us to miss the transformative power of this story. Did God strike them down in front of the church? Is this an example of divine judgment? Maybe. I don't know. I'll have to ask one day. But what I do know is that's not what Luke is trying to get across. No, he's attempting to, to communicate something that is so necessary for us followers of Jesus to grasp. The resurrection of Jesus Christ led to the formation of a, com of a community of people who were radically generous with one another. That's his point. They gave themselves to the welfare of each other, doing whatever it took to make sure everyone had their needs met. And they were so aware of the Holy Spirit at work within their lives, guiding them and pushing them and giving them hope that a new way of being in relationship with one another really was possible if they all did their part. See, church, the goal isn't for us to figure out how these two people died. The goal is to move us to care for and meet the needs we see, to be radically generous and not to pretend we are more righteous than we are, because that will kill this community. So, where do we go from here? Well, let's consider this on a, on a micro level and on a macro level. The micro level moves us to consider how we can be radically generous in the friendships we have. The example we get from the, the early church, the example we get throughout Scripture, and the example from Jesus is that when we see a need, we meet the need. Simple as that. If you see a need, meet the need. If you see a need, meet the need. Here's what John has to say about this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Again, the Bible is clear. As disciples of Jesus Christ, if you see a need, do whatever you can to meet the need. And if you can't meet the need, help find someone who can. And I can tell you that based on my experience, Cornerstone people have always believed this and lived this out. And we need to continue in that tradition. On a macro level, we would do well to consider what it means for us to be radically generous. And one word I'd love for you to wrestle through as you process all this is not ownership, not, not about what's mine, but stewardship. How are you stewarding what you have? How am I? How are you? How are we managing what God has entrusted us with? Now, I, I know I threw something big at you earlier with the whole house ownership thing. And again, I'm not directing you to sell your home to give to anyone in need. If you feel something to, of, of, that mag, of that magnitude, um, trust me. That's not me working. That's the Holy Spirit moving. But ask yourself these questions that I'm wrestling through with you. How am I stewarding my home? 
How am I stewarding my, my money, my time, my resources? Perhaps you're hearing all of this today and it's moving you to think deeply about these questions. Maybe it's even prompting more questions and maybe those questions are creating some discomfort or an uneasiness. If that's you, I'm so glad. Not because I hope for discomfort or uneasiness, but because I believe the Holy Spirit is already nudging you and nudging us as a church to be such a radically generous community that, that the needs around us are consistently met through us. Not theoretically, but practically and dependably. That we would always wrestle with and respond to the question, am I radically generous as Jesus calls me to be? Or am I overly concerned with what is mine? Let's pray. Father God, first for me, I know that I need to, <laughs> there's some repenting that I need to do and some conviction that I experienced as you led me through this study because I know that I'm overly concerned with what is mine. I know there are moments where I dismiss your generosity as just something you did and it doesn't, doesn't shift or change anything in my life. So God, I confess that to you and I lay that before you and I ask that for me personally and for us as a church, that we would be marked by the same radically generous, radical, radical generosity that you displayed and you exhibited over and over and over again, ultimately to the expense of your own life. God, let us be conduits of hope and, and peace and, and comfort in a culture and a society that is so caught up in what we have and how far we're getting ahead, God. Let us be a church that is marked by radical generosity that whenever any of us would see a need, that we would do whatever we can to meet it. Move us in that. Push us in that. And make us aware of the needs that we may not even be seeing right now. We love you. We adore you. We praise you. We honor you. And we pray all of this in the matchless, powerful name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.